As we come to hear a message from God this morning, let's unite our hearts in prayer and let us pray. Father, assure in us this morning of your love for us. Assure in us the wonderful message of salvation. Assure in us the forgiveness of sins. And assure us that this is your word, and therefore you are speaking to us. So speak. Work in us and through us, that that we may grow into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In our world today, there's a a pre-thinking about the term mummy's boys. I wonder what you think of, or perhaps who you think of, when you think of the term mummy's boys. According to one dictionary definition, a mummy's boy is typically a teenage boy whose mother is still uh, treating him like a child. In a broader sense, this term is sometimes used to refer to young individuals who spend most of their adult life relying on support or allowances from their parents instead of working for themselves. Mummy's boys. I think we all have a little bit of sympathy with a mummy's boy in many ways. Well, I can certainly empathize with them because at university, as I was in England, everyone would go home for the weekend and would come back with all these freshly washed and ironed clothes and little food parcels on a Sunday night. And part of me was quite envious because it was a bit of a distance for me to post my laundry home and get it back again within a weekend. But mummy's boys, they're cared for they're looked after. And you know, they always said they were never mummy's boys, even though I never witnessed them cooking for themselves, but instead hearing the ping of the microwave with the food that had been presented for every day that they were away. They were waited on hand and foot. Mummy took care of them in whatever situation they need. And in our passage today, we get a glimpse of two mummy's boys. As we look at Matthew chapter 20, their mother is speaking on their behalf to try and assure them of a position in the kingdom that is going to be ushered in by Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. This isn't just physically because, yes, they are heading in the direction of Jerusalem. But for Jesus, this is spiritual as well. As he sets his face as Scripture records, towards Jerusalem, knowing what is going to happen, knowing that the next weeks are going to lead to his death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And Jesus and his disciples, along with other Galilean pilgrims, are heading to Jerusalem for the Passover that was celebrated at the temple. And as they go, Jesus is stopped on his journey by the mother of Zebedee's sons. We know them as James and John. We know this because in Matthew 4, verses 21 and 22, we hear of their call as Jesus walks and says, follow me. And so they leave their nets and follow him, and they're recorded as James and John. They're part of that three that are the closest to Jesus along with Peter. So Zebedee's wife kneels down before Jesus to ask a favor. Jesus responds to her by asking, well, what 
do you want? What is this favor that you're asking me? And if you read about who this person is, this wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, there is some belief that she is, in fact, the aunt of Jesus. And so this would have been an ordinary thing for her to come and ask Jesus questions like this. Although the action may not have been unfamiliar to him, the request certainly was, because at its most basic level, here is a mother looking out for her two boys. Her request is that Jesus grant her son's position in the kingdom that he is ushering in, one to sit on the right-hand side and one to sit on the left-hand side. In the ancient Near East culture that we find the Bible in, those who would have heard this, asking for them to sit on the right and on to the left, would have known that this was the position of the two top people in the kingdom under the monarch. So this is no small request, nor is it a request of one person. Her ten- intentions may have been to look out for her sons and make sure that they had a position. But as we look at Jesus' response, he addresses the brothers by stating that they are naive and don't fully understand what they are asking. Now we come to the real root of who are asking the question. It is James and John themselves. Perhaps using their mother's coattails to to maybe be a nice bridge between them and Jesus. To maybe win favor with Jesus if it was their mother but it is them who are secretly wanting to know. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples have grasped that he is the Messiah. He is the one who was foretold in the Old Testament who would come and create Israel, God's true people. But they didn't fully get Jesus because Jesus was ushering in a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom that would come and get rid of the Romans or the Gentiles, but he would usher in a kingdom, a true Israel, not a promised land that was cleansed, but a true Israel that would worship God, Yahweh, as they would call him, worship him in truth and understand his sovereignty. But Jesus, as he goes and continues to challenge them with this, asks them this question. He says, you don't know what you are asking. And he says to them, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Can they go through with what Jesus is about to go through? Can they follow him on that road, that path of suffering? Because that is what the cup is. The cup is suffering. We know what's going to happen, and indeed the disciples should have known. Because before this incident, we come to what is the third, the third in accounts of what Jesus is foretelling about his death, the passion predictions, they're called. And here Jesus gives the most in-depth detail about what's going to happen to him. So in verses 17 to 19, he retells for the third time what he's going to endure. He's informing the disciples about what is going to happen. He's telling them that he is going to be handed over to the Jewish authorities. However that's going to happen, he will be under their charge 
They will try him. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, that is, the Romans. This is the first time that Jesus ever talks about being handed over to Gentiles. It's the first time where it ever comes into the equation that this isn't going to be just a Jewish thing. He's going to be handed over to the punishment of the Romans. And this had to happen because under Roman law, the Jews could do no corporal punishment of their own. Oh, they could deal with minor little things like stealing a loaf of bread and things like that. But whenever it came to corporal punishment, there was no way that the Jews were allowed to do this themselves. And so Rome had to take this law. In being handed over to these Gentiles, he would be mocked and he would be flogged and he would be crucified. Crucifixion, the harshest of all the punishments that Rome could give out. It was painful. It was long-lasting. It was not a quick death. Jesus is being real in what is to come. And the disciples still don't get it. The third time they've been told that Jesus is going to die and rise again. And they still don't get it. This is the cup of suffering that James and John would take. Just as they'd said they would be willing to drink from it. But let's not judge them too harshly, because it is a quick response on their part. They are probably sincere in thinking, yes, we're willing to suffer, to take what it is to follow you. But they were thinking in the short term. Christ, you've told us, and indeed Christ had gone through a series of teaching about ushering in this new kingdom. And they knew that Christ was going to come and his 12 disciples would rule with him. But their mindset was on earth not on what was spiritual and on heaven. And so they were thinking that, yes, for a couple of weeks we'll suffer, but once this, this rebellion takes place, we will have our seat and we will be with Jesus ruling in this new kingdom. So they were thinking of suffering on a short term. Jesus was talking about for the rest of their lives. Verse 23, Jesus assures them that they will drink from this cup of suffering for his sake. It is recorded that James faced martyrdom and John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos so they would know suffering to the death. However, this whole question of who's going to sit where on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side, or wherever in heaven Jesus says, no, that is God's decision. He deserves the right, and he has the places in the, his kingdom, and it is not for Jesus to say. And once again, we get this picture of Jesus submitting to the authority of his heavenly Father. In human terms, I suppose we can understand what is going on. From the fall of humankind, the world sees greatness as defined in prestige, in power, and in glory. Jesus has on a number of occasions taught that his kingdom would come. But the disciples, not getting it, were looking at an earthly kingdom. But Christ, the heavenly kingdom, the messianic mindset, that idea of Messiah coming from God, on top of this, there was a rising nationalism within Jewish culture of winning back Israel as it once was before the exile. Jesus hasn't been misleading the people. He hasn't led them down a path of this idea that they will get prestige, power, and glory. 
but the people do not understand, the disciples do not fully understand what the coming Messiah means, that it is an envoy from God to usher in God's new kingdom. Jesus has already told his disciples that he's come to seek and to save the lost. He is coming to bring a message of hope, a message of salvation for all people. And this can only come about through his death and resurrection, his suffering, the cup from which he must drink. So let's move forward 2,000 years to where we're sitting right here and right now. And how do we see suffering today? Do we see it as something from church history? Or do we see it as something to happening to people who just aren't as well off as we are right across the world? Is it something that is real and is active? Or is it confined to the stories and the history of our faith. And even if we do realize that suffering is going on, how do we measure it? Because someone's suffering could just be a mild complaint compared to what I'm going through, but yet when we have the other person's perspective, they could say the exact same thing. We are told in Scripture that we are to expect suffering if we follow Christ. Not if we follow Christ in some small country somewhere else in the world. We expect, or we should expect, suffering here and now. It happens today. It has happened throughout the history of the church. It happens when we are made fun of because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We may think that's a very childish thing, but it happens talk to a university student who wants to take a stand for their faith in many of our secular courses. And they're nearly scoffed at and laughed at by a lecturer turning around and said, you don't believe in that, do you? People questioning and making fun of us for believing in Jesus Christ. It happens when things that are taken as normal by the world, that are accepted by the world, come into conflict with what we believe how we see ourselves as different, holding to God's law rather than the world's. And we try and reconcile, well, how do we do this with being salt and light, the conflict that comes as we decide, what do we do? Do we go the way of the world or do we follow the way of Christ? The decisions, that sense of personal suffering and trying to see what is the right way as we are influenced by the world. Suffering also comes as we disagree with each other, as we disagree with the people around us in this building, with other Christians we know of in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, our brothers and our sisters. As we disagree over trivial things, we agonize over forgiveness and repentance to restore a right heart before God. The church suffers, therefore, we suffer. Suffering has many guises. We can't ignore them and think it doesn't happen to us because they will come as we follow Christ. So how do we prepare for them and what should our reaction to them be? Peter tells us, as we looked at with the girls and boys, to trust in God. 
Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. By his caring nature, he is with us. He has promised through Jesus Christ never to leave us nor forsake us. He is interested in us and cares for us no matter what we are going through. Peter also tells us in the first chapter of his first letter that we will suffer now on earth, but just for a little while, because there is a time coming when our lives will end and we will know true joy and salvation. And the purpose of this suffering in this short time, as Peter describes it, is so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We go through suffering so that we can be proved, so that we can know our faith. Just as gold is tested in the fire and imperfections are removed, so with us, as we endure whatever we endure, we are being refined refined into something more precious than gold. We are refined into the body of Christ. We are being refined into that eternity that is prepared for us by God the Father. We will endure such things. We must endure such things so that we can be presented before our Heavenly Father and accepted by Him as His people who have stood the test and come through. Let's look back at the passage as Jesus has assured James and John that they will drink from His cup, that they will suffer. We see that there are ten disgruntled disciples in verse 20, uh, 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They had been witnessing this whole episode. And this motley crew that Jesus called to himself are indignant or have a strong displeasure with this thing that they see as unjust. And it may not be that they disagree with the question being asked. Because they may have wanted to ask that question as well. Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you, as we thought about a few weeks ago. We've given that all up. So what are we going to get out of it? Are we going to sit on the right or the left? Or where are we going to be in your kingdom? No, their problem wasn't with the question, because it's a question that they probably wanted to ask themselves. Their problem was that James and John had beaten them to it. That they had got to Christ first to ask this question, to see who would be in this seat of privileged. Jesus knows the heart of his disciples as he knows our hearts. And he turns to them and once again turns the thinking of the disciples upside down. We saw last week with the teaching of Jesus that the last shall be first and the first shall be last as a message of God's grace, something that they found so difficult to understand. But here again, Jesus says that they must be servants. They must serve. They must do what they can for others for the sake of Christ because that is what he is doing. Christ was the servant. 
Today we look at our leaders. And whatever you think of whichever political system you want to look at, we like to think that they're serving us. They are public servants. And we like servant leadership. But leadership is all about power, prestige, and glory. Well, that's what the disciples thought. How can we be servants whenever you have promised us a kingdom where we will rule with you? Jesus isn't talking about prestige, power, and glory, or winning favor with God. Because we can't do that. We can't try and earn where our spot is in that heavenly company that will be before him. But if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we must follow the example of Jesus Christ, as he says in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we come to the real reason why the Messiah came. He came to be a servant. He came to serve. And the ultimate cost for the servant was to give his life so that many would have that opportunity of a relationship, a restoring relationship with God the Father. This was the ransom that he became a servant to bring about. And Jesus demonstrated this through his ministry. As we read through the, the gospel accounts, we see that he gave of himself to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, and to show the way of righteousness. This was how the disciples were to live. This was the preparation teaching that they needed to become the leaders and apostles of the early church. Jesus is preparing them for what is to come. So how do you see yourself? Are you looking for prestige, power, and glory? Or are you the one who desires to be the servant of many? And let's be honest for a moment. I don't think any of us likes the thought of being a servant. We have in our heads this idea of what a Victorian servant was, upstairs, downstairs, running at every beck and call of their master. They had very few rights. They did not have the the power to make decisions for where their lives were going. And if we're also honest, we all like to think that we have that little bit of power and authority and the privileges that it brings. I would be a hypocrite if I didn't confess to you this morning that I haven't experienced such things in a classroom, on an overseas mission field, leading teams, mission teams and camp teams, it's very easy to be the leader because people do what you say. You say jump and they jump and the power that that gives you, it makes you feel great about yourself. But that's all it is. To you, that is all it is, is a sense of how great you are. But it has a detrimental effect on the body of Christ. For when we place ourselves in positions of authority and abuse that authority, we tear apart the body of Christ. We hurt brothers and sisters. 
I have played Top Cat over my Christian family more times than I would care to remember. The temptation has been too strong. The ego trip has been mine, but I have known the detriment to my brothers and sisters and my relationship with them in playing that card. So how do we live as disciple servants? Micah, at the end of the Old Testament, in chapter 6 and verse 8, sums it up for us. When Micah says this, He that is God has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? We are to be fair in the situations of life. We are to love and find love in every circumstance. We are to know our place before God and humbly walk before Him. In following this, we know our relationship with the world around us and our place as siblings in the body, the family of Christ. Suffering is something that has to come and will come to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and follow as His disciples. He has promised it. The apostles have written about it. How will you respond? How will you respond to the influences that will come in whatever way it troubles us, upsets us, and causes us to suffer for the sake of Christ? Will you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? The brothers got their answer. Even though it was a question posed by their mother, they still got their answer. They are to be servants as Christ was a servant, to follow his example and drink the cup of suffering that he has drunk. The question is, will you? Will you, along with me, leave here this morning and embrace whatever suffering comes your way because it is done for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? so that we will be genuinely his people, that we will be given the faith to endure it, the faith to trust, and the faith to live lives as his disciples. May God give us the grace to accept his word, his teaching, and apply it to our daily lives. Let's pray. Father, we do not know what the future will hold for us. We do not know where you are going to lead us and to what circumstances in life will cross our path. We don't know when times of suffering will come, within an hour, within a week, within a month or years. But Father, you have told us that they will come. But you have also promised you have given us the hope to know and to understand that you will lead us through each one as we place our trust in you. So by your grace, help us. Draw near to us so that we will not desire anything but you. 
that we will not look for other answers and solutions and comforts, but will fully trust in your name. And may we, as a community of believers, disciples in Jesus Christ, support each other as your Son supported his disciples and as they supported each other in the early church so that together we will know your blessing, your blessing of seeing us through whatever we face and the blessing of knowing the unity of the family of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're